taken from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, which can be found in the Church Bible on page 1132. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast not in the, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were, with, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, James. What a glorious reading that is, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, I ask that the awesome achievements of your son Jesus that we were just hearing about, that we would see them clearly tonight, and particularly the achievements that he won for us on the cross. Help me to preach faithfully and let everything that is of you have its full effect and be multiplied in our lives. And let everything that's not of you just fall by the wayside, Lord. May you come and speak to us and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the human longing for love is perhaps the most significant, widespread, and powerful drive that we have. The University of Utah published an article this year entitled, um, Seven Reasons Why Loving Relationships Are Good For You. And it goes on to explain that when we know that we are loved, either by friends or family and so on, uh, we see a number of well-documented um, and scientific benefits. And they include all sorts of things like living longer, um, healing from your injuries faster, having lower blood pressure, bolstering your immune system, enjoying better heart health, and even feeling less pain. It's like, you know, a car that's designed to run on petrol. We're, we're wired, aren't we? We're built to survive and thrive on love. Now, we're in a preaching series through the evening uh, entitled The Road to Calvary or The Road to the Cross, where over several weeks we're going to uh, be looking at exactly what Jesus accomplished for us when he died on the cross, because it's a multifaceted incredible reality, the cross. 
and God did numerous things through it, so we're going to be looking at it over several weeks. And uh, here in this glorious reading, we're told that through the cross, God has lifted up an unmistakable banner, not just to any old source of love, but a banner to the deepest, most satisfying, uh, and most irreducibly real love that there is. And he summarizes it there in that incredible verse in verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's God's cross-shaped love that completely changed my life. I decided to follow Christ as a teenager, but when I went to university, I uh, stopped caring about my faith and shoved God out of my life. Uh, I lived a pretty hedonistic lifestyle. But even then, underneath the partying and the, uh, the sort of very active social lifestyle I was living, I absolutely knew that there was something missing. It was like no matter what interest I pursued, no matter how busy I kept myself, no matter how many relationships I had, there was this constant nagging sense that something wasn't right. And I just remember it came to a crisis point when I was 19 years old, when I just remember sitting on um, a park bench with a friend with a cigarette in my hand. I don't smoke now, though. Uh, where I just said, you know, I feel like in my hour of need, God just hasn't been present, hasn't been real to me at all. Um, he invited me to church, and I decided to give it kind of one last-ditch effort. And during that service, I experienced something which uh, it was miraculous, and where my eyes were opened like they never had been before. Um, I saw that the, what we were just hearing, the, the awesome love, the ocean of love that motivated Jesus to go and die on the cross for us, that this love was now calling out to me specifically, personally, and absolutely unmistakably. Now, at that time, I was studying philosophy and ethics at the University of London, just around the corner from here in Kensington. Uh, and so I wasn't a naturally easily swayed person. I'm a naturally skeptical person, which is why I, I was drawn to studying philosophy in the first place. I knew how to argue and how to counter-argue, but this was different. What I experienced in that church service with my friend there, I wasn't just dealing with arguments or ideas. I was dealing with a personal reality that encompassed me so completely that I couldn't deny it any more than I could deny that the sky is blue. And I went home that day changed and like something massive had shifted within me. And at the heart of it was this realization that in the cross of Christ, I was dealing with a love so irreducibly real and deep that I couldn't resist him anymore. And in this passage, Paul's going to teach us that the way to understand God's kind of uh, cross-shaped love, that there's, it's a question of a contrast, which I'll unpack in a moment, a question of justice, and a question of confidence. 
So a question of confidence, question of contrast, and a, sorry, a question of contrast, a question of justice, and a question of confidence. So firstly, a question of confidence, of contrast even. Now, I'm not going to focus this much this evening on verses 1 to 5 of the reading we just heard. Instead, I want to focus with you on verses 6 to 11, because these are the verses that actually unpack uh, for us what Jesus was actually achieving for us when he died. So in verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So do you see the contrast there that the Apostle Paul's setting out? He's saying there's you and I, whom he describes as powerless and ungodly. They're the two words he uses. And on the other hand, there's Christ, the only sinless person who ever lived, the only one with the true power and ability to please and obey God. And it's this Christ who comes and dies for us. And he asserts something that might sound counterintuitive because he says essentially that at the beginning to understanding God's love on the cross, well, it begins with understanding our utterly hopeless and powerless predicament as human beings. So what does he actually mean there when he says that we are powerless? Primarily means that we're powerless to resist the power of sin. It's why he pairs together in verse 6 the word powerless with the word ungodly. While we were still powerless, he says, Christ died for the ungodly. It's a bit like I'm told that um, if you visit an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, where there's a person there who wants to get better, who wants to recover from their addiction, There's a moment where they need to realize that, and stop denying, so I'm told, stop pretending or minimizing the destructive effects of their addiction. And they reach the point where they voluntarily say, and maybe you've heard people say it on television, my name is Bob and I'm an alcoholic. And that recognition of powerlessness is absolutely crucial to the recovery process, to beginning to walk the path of life. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is teaching here. He's saying that unless we understand our sheer powerlessness in the face of sin, we will not be able to understand how the cross is such an awesome declaration, demonstration of the love of God. It's a question of contrast. Now, many secular people, many modern people, when they hear that word sin, if they think of it, anything at all when they hear that word, it tends to be, well, sin means naughty but pleasurable things that we enjoy. So like an extra slice of cake or something that's bad but not so bad if you have too much of it. But the Bible says that if that's what we think of when we hear the word sin, we haven't understood it at all. Sin is not naughty things we happen to enjoy. Sin is more like, in this passage, a power that uh, controls and enslaves and disempowers us. And the first step to freedom is to say from the bottom of our hearts, like they do at Alcoholics Anonymous, 
My name is Matt, and I'm powerless. I'm powerless to save myself. I'm powerless to get myself out of the predicament I'm in. And God, please, would you help me? Please, would you save me? And as I was thinking about this, there's all sorts of implications of what Paul says here, that we're powerless. But the one that came to my mind is that I think it needs to increase. This passage, when we really get hold of it, increases our level of love and compassion for our friends and family who don't love and follow Jesus. Because our non-Christian friends and family are not simply you know, silly or misguided people who need to be argued or cajoled into the kingdom of God. They're spiritually powerless people that Jesus needs to set free. It's not that unbelievers need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and just try harder to find God. And there's plenty of churches you can go to, and that'll be the message. No, the, the point is that we're spiritually blind before we come to Christ. They can't see what we see when we look at Jesus. They can't see his beauty, his majesty, and all that he's worth. And that has the potential to increase our compassion and our love and our understanding for them. And since we're told here that it was our powerlessness that moved the heart of God and energized Jesus to come into this world and to die for us, you know, in a similar way, we can say, I'm not going to expect people to just rock up at church to start searching for God, though it would be great if they did, of course. No, I'm going to bring the gospel with me into my context, into my workplace, with my family and my friends. You know, with that colleague whose marriage is falling apart, with that friend frightened by their health problems, with that person who keeps asking you probing questions about your faith. And we can say, you know, I don't claim to have all the answers to your problems, but let me tell you about the one who, as it puts it there in verse 6, while we were still powerless, died for an ungodly person like me. Understanding God's cross-shaped love is a question of contrast, but it's also a question, and this is so fundamental to understand the cross, a question of justice, and uh, it's there in verse 9. He says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And so do you notice there the two phrases he uses to describe God's justice. The first phrase is that phrase, justified by his blood. And the second phrase is that one, saved from God's wrath. Both of them are unpacking, really, what Jesus did and what he was achieving for us when he died. And you might listen to them and say, well, how, is, how are those two statements, how do they relate to justice? And the key to it is in the repetition of a phrase throughout this passage. It happens four times where it says Christ, or he, died for us. That is, it's saying Jesus didn't die primarily as an example. He died for us. That is, in our place. It's like Jesus voluntarily swapped places with us and gladly took the judgment that we would deserve for all the ways that we've wronged him. 
And so that in return, all of his freedom, all of his perfection, all of the relationship that he enjoys with the Father could be credited freely to us. Now, modern people can hear this talk of being justified by Jesus' blood, being saved from God's wrath in verse 9, and think, well, isn't this terribly regressive? Like, there's this angry deity, it seems, who demands blood. It just sounds like out-of-date, most morally suspect nonsense. But actually, I disagree with that and say that love without justice is not love. When justice is not served, we feel the sense of outrage deeply, whether we're talking about uh, George Floyd or Stephen Lawrence, the Hillsborough disaster, or even more recently, the government's plans to you know, send vulnerable refugees packing to another country. The Christian faith tells us that we feel that somebody should pay when wrong things happen. And the reality, this passage says, is that someone did pay. The reality is that God would not be holy and righteous if he was not provoked by sin and evil. And the beauty of the cross is that God was able to find this incredible way to express his love while also demonstrating his justice. Or to put it another way, it's that our sin was so bad that Jesus absolutely did need to come and die if we were going to come and be saved, but also that he loved us so much that he wanted to come and die. That's the gospel. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, wow, I feel like I should just go sit down after reading that. How do you beat that? It's an incredible God that we worship, an incredible Savior that we have. And God's cross-shaped love is a question of justice, and yet God's justice, his holiness... It's something that is increasingly coming under attack in the church today. In the place of the costly, sacrificial death of Christ, in the place of sinners like you and I, increasingly what we hear is a false gospel, which is essentially about unconditional affirmation. There was a theologian in the 60s called Niebuhr, and he sarcastically described it like this. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. But if we lose God's holiness and justice, we lose the very essence of why Jesus dying is such awesome and permanent guarantee of his love. So we've got God's cross-shaped love. It's a question of contrast. It's a question of justice. And finally, it's a question of confidence. In verses 10 to 11, he says, For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. He's saying there's an appropriate confidence, um, a boasting, he calls it, um, that comes when you see 
God's love poured out for you at the cross. And we know this is an important theme because he said it already in verse 2. We have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast, there it is again, in the hope of the glory of God. It's like, you know, um, you carry yourself differently. Now, have you ever had one of those moments where you received such delightful news that, um, that it totally transformed how you felt for weeks? Uh, maybe getting a dream job or passing an exam or hearing that a very sick friend has got better or giving birth to your first child. I don't know what it would be. But it's like, after you've got news like that, what you're doing week to week hasn't changed. It's still the same routine, the same challenges as before, but somehow your week just feels totally different, just feels lighter, more joyful because of the good news you've received. And it's a bit like that when we really receive God's love and forgiveness through the cross. It's got this power to sustain us and to enable us to rejoice even in our suffering. And that's what he talks about in the first half of that reading. We glory in our suffering, as he puts it in verse 3. And you might say, well, how on earth do I do that? You know, I can barely glory in my morning alarm, let alone glory in my suffering. Here's how we do it. Here's the invitation tonight to look upon a bleeding, dying Savior, gladly dying in your place so that you could know his grace and his forgiveness forever. You can see God demonstrating once and for all his colossal love for you in this. And the Greek word that Paul uses, demonstrate, God shows, demonstrates, it's like an ongoing participle. It's like God is constantly, ongoingly saying, if you want to see, find a source for love, the cross is where you look, it's where you find it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know that tonight? My guess would be that there's a lot of Christians here tonight who, on one level, know that. But do we really know it? Do you know how loved and precious you are to Jesus? I mean, just think for a moment. Just try to imagine the, the kind of love that would motivate him to, to step down from his throne, to willingly take upon himself a burden which is not his and which he is not obliged to take upon himself at all, but which he absolutely freely does so that we could be with him. It's incredible. And you know, one of the main tasks of the devil in the Bible is to accuse the people of God. That's what he's called, an accuser. You know, it's almost like the devil knows he can't touch this, what God has done for us in Jesus. So he goes after the next best thing which is our confidence in Christ. And he does do that. He'll whisper things to you like, you think you can make a difference? You're a joke. You know, you think God has forgiven you? No, you're disgusting. You'll never amount to anything. I don't know what it is for you. 
But no matter how much the devil whispers lies and condemnation to God's people, he can't undo what Jesus has done for us. And that's what Paul is at pains to express here. He says in verse 10, the logic of the good news, he says, for if while we were God's enemies, as we were hearing before, while we were powerless and ungodly, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? It's a question of confidence, isn't it? And one of the key indications that we've really understood the cross is not simply that we believe in it or trust in it or acknowledge it as important as all of those things are. No, there's a special joy to be had when we boast in it and glory in it, that we allow the cross to breathe um, a deep and joyful confidence in our heart that you can step into the office or into the tricky family dynamics and know I'm going in here with the Holy Spirit of God living in me and as a child of God by his grace. I'm going in here as someone for whom Jesus died. That's the worth that he has set on my life and your life. And if Jesus has done all of that for me, well, we can say, let anything in all of creation do its worst, because my, my sins are forgiven, and I'm utterly safe in his hands forever. Let's pray.